Hey everyone, Keith here. I wanted to give you a heads up that you're about to hear a re-release of an episode with my friend and colleague, Sherrod Apti. Sherrod is a partner in our Bangkok office, chairman of Bain Thailand, and the APAC regional recruiting lead. And in that role, I get to work with him closely as I work as global head of consultant recruiting. Sherrod has had a series of roles that you'll hear about shortly, but I really want you to listen to how he has built his own Bain journey to continue thriving during a career that has kept him at Bain for more than 25 years. I hope you'll enjoy hearing from Sherrod, and we look forward to releasing new episodes soon. Thanks, and take care. What I've loved about Bain and the journey being here is that I've had a series of roles. And, and this is, you know, we sort of talk in Bain about sort of making your own Bain. And I, I would say that for me, this has just been part of the fascination. That's Sherrod Apti, a partner in our Bangkok office, talking about how he's been able to build his own Bain by working across several industries and taking on different leadership positions within the firm. I'm Keith Bevins, a partner and global head of consultant recruiting at Bain & Company, and this is Beyond the Bio. It's a podcast that shares the stories of our extraordinary people from their perspectives. You can read their bios online, but those barely scratch the surface of who they are and the important work they're doing here at Bain. Today, I'll talk with Sherrod about his background, finding his way to Bain after 15 years at another global consulting firm, and the many contributions he's made to building our business in APAC. Sherrod, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Keith. I'm honored to join you today and looking forward to our conversation. Sherrod, let's start with a little bit of your background. After undergrad at Oberlin College and being a teacher and soccer coach, you went back and got a master's in theology at Harvard and then started a career in consulting. Why did you make the jump from your master's right to another consulting firm? I never actually planned to be in consulting. I got an undergraduate degree at Oberlin in English and history, went on to be a high school English teacher, and then went on to pursue my master's in plan to be a, a PhD or a professor at Harvard Divinity School. I got a call from a friend who was working at a company called LEK, and they actually needed a uh, receptionist. I was a graduate student, and the job paid well. I took the job as a part-time receptionist initially with LEK, and that's how I started in consulting. Which is not a common start to consulting for a lot of people who might be listening today. Help me out. How did you end up from there to being a partner to consulting firm? I imagine there were a couple of steps in between, but all kidding aside, how did that open up other opportunities for you in the industry? Yeah, no, what happened was this was the early 90s, showing my age here, and investment banking was going crazy. They had basically taken most of the recruits. LEK moved me from, after a while, said, hey, can you also help out and do a little bit of, like, become a marketing assistant? And I did that, and then I helped a little bit with some of the case teams. And then they said, why don't you join our incoming program and basically become an associate consultant in September? I thought about it. My father, uh, my father, professor at Duke, flew up to Boston and we went out and had a dinner and he said, hey, you should take this job. There's no real future in academia. You're going to bounce around from one non-tenure track job to another. I called up the place for my PhD program. I had already been accepted and they said they would hold me, hold my place for a year. And so I, I took the job. I was 29 and I was the oldest Stacy in the batch. Everybody else was 21, 22, and that's how I started. And it's been an, a, an amazing journey ever since. I knew nothing about consulting. I'd never even opened a spreadsheet in my life. I had no idea what the weighted average cost of capital or all these terms meant. I look back now and it was one of those foolish things that you do only to discover uh, many years later that it was actually the right calling. So somewhere between Lotus spreadsheets and the early versions of Excel and the old Windows machines, there's a lesson for people that might be listening, I guess, how did you think about paying dues and being the oldest AC in your class? You know, that's 
in some ways can be tremendously energizing, but in other ways it can be somewhat humbling to be sort of starting the journey at a place years after some of your peers. What was that experience like and how did you adjust and adapt and, and sort of fit in in the broader sense? It was interesting. I would say my first probably five to six years in consulting, I often was reporting, not often, I was always reporting to somebody considerably younger than me. So I was a 29 and then very quickly a 30-year-old AC1 and I was reporting to an SAC that was 25 and I went out of my way to try to make sure that people didn't feel uncomfortable. I could see for some of those people that was uncomfortable that they were having somebody quite older than them report to them. So I tried to always make sure that they were comfortable. But what I found was that I just brought something very different to the case team experience. There was a, first of all, I, I didn't have a business background, but oftentimes that non-business background allowed me to provide answers or insights in a very different way than, than some of my colleagues. You just sort of figure out a way to make yourself useful. Over time, you just sort of carve out your role. You start to learn the nomenclature. You start to figure things out. And then I got sent to Asia. I got sent out to Manila. We had a uh, LEK at the time, had a very large relationship with San Miguel. So I ended up getting sent out to Manila to work on that. And that was really a, where my career took off. I found that in Asia, I was able to be even more effective than I had been in the U.S., working in traditional case teams. There's a lot in Asia about creating deep relationships with your working teams. And, and my age there was probably an advantage. And so I would say that the being sent to Manila was probably the springboard for my career. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit, because I, I know in some cultures, not just in Asia, the age and seniority carries a certain gravitas or a certain weight with it that might start you out from day one with a leg up with some clients in their minds. Was that your experience there? And and that's coming from somebody who continually gets asked if he's a consultant or an AC when I walk yeah. into the room. I'm wondering what it's like on the other side of that, although now we're both in the bald brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. That's, but to, you still have that young face, Keith, so they think you're, uh, that's why they think you're young. But yeah, no, Asia was, again, I'm showing my age. This was pre-Asian crisis Asia. It was the roaring Asian tigers, economies of Philippines and Thailand Indonesia, et cetera. So things were booming. It was just a fascinating place to be, super exciting. Companies were growing. Capital was abundant. We were able to sort of just go in and add a lot of value to clients that were trying to figure out how to, how to grow. And I think, you know, I had a particular experience where I was actually on a project where, sadly, it didn't go well. And it didn't go well because the, the manager on the project and one of the consultants got romantically involved. They sort of took their eyes off the project a little bit and uh, bless their souls. They've subsequently been married and have a, a couple of kids and are living happily ever after. But on that project, the project went poorly. And I remember we presented to the, to the client who was bitterly disappointed with the results to the point where they sort of said they weren't paying. And the partners on the case sort of panicked and, and weren't quite sure what to do. There were four of us on the project team and the manager and the consultant were planning to already go off. They'd already gotten approval to run off and they were going to have a holiday somewhere. I forgot where it was. There was somebody out of our Milan office and he was actually getting married. And so he was heading back to Milan. So I was the only guy left. And the partner came to me and said, would I do the case over from scratch by myself? I think this is where my age helped. But I sort of knew what the answer was. And I had a lunch with the partner, told him I could. I knew what the answer was. And he he left me there to, by myself to redo the case from scratch, which I did. The client was happy. The LEK got paid. And that then I sort of became the go-to guy in Asia for LEK and, and went on to open their office, their first Asian office in Bangkok and their second Asian office in Singapore. So and was involved in our acquisition of some of a, a smaller business in China that ultimately became our Asian footprint. So that was really a series of events that allowed me to sort of, I would say, turbocharge my career by 
being at the periphery in Asia, where I was given much more freedom and flexibility to do things. In any firm, that story alone, just on that experience in Manila, would be the stuff of legend. Although the Hollywood version starts all the way back with you being a receptionist and then saving the firm's Asia business through the one-man show. I'm not sure it's quite that grandiose, but thank you. Uh, Look, I'll write the script. You just play the part. You mentioned there at the end was moving to Bangkok, moving to Singapore, and really getting the experience across all of Asia. How did you find it adjusting and adapting to the different cultures? Because I I believe you're from the States, and Manila was sort of the first time that you had lived in Asia. And I know from traveling around the region, the different countries have very different feels in some ways. How did you sort of navigate that as an American in Asia? I am half Asian. My father's Indian. I'd spent time in India and had traveled around Asia as a young kid with my parents on our way to India. My father is a, I think as I may have mentioned, a professor at Duke. He'd done a sabbatical in India doing some research. He was a linguist. We had stopped in Thailand and a number of places. So I, I knew them a little bit. I'd traveled to some of them at various times. Asia is just, for me, is just a fascinating hodgepodge of different kinds of cultures. You've got the largest Islamic country in the world is Indonesia. Even within other parts of Asia, you have different kinds of Buddhism. It just happened to be that what I studied in, in divinity school was, uh, and what I was planning to go on and do my PhD in was what's called Theravadan Buddhism. And I'm, I'm not going to get into a whole philosophy on Buddhism, but they're basically two great schools, Mahayana, Hinayana. Theravadan is more Hinayana, which is what's called the lesser vehicle. Mahayana is called the, the, the greater vehicle. And so I, I knew quite a lot about I would say the theology, when I talk about the theology, I knew what motivated people. I knew a lot about how they constructed their lives and the role that religion played in, in their lives. I think all of that helped me. It helped me to understand people's motivations and how to engage with them. In many ways, it was much more helpful to me than maybe getting an MBA would have been, because that would have taught me the numbers and the theory and marketing. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be a consultant and drive successful change in organizations, it's about engaging with the people, finding what motivates them to change And I think in many ways, my theology background helped prepare me for that better. And I would almost say potentially gave me an advantage. I completely understand that. I mean, in some cases, the answer is part of the problem. Getting somebody to believe the answer and change their behavior is actually the real challenge. One of the things you mentioned there was motivation. And after several years at the other firm, you were motivated to switch firms and join Bain. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it was like when you joined and and what your roles were when you first joined the firm? People sort of ask me what was, you know, if I look back on my career, what do I regret? And I sort of jokingly, half jokingly, I should say, say that my, my biggest regret is that I didn't join Bain earlier. I had other opportunities at other times in my career. I had a, I had a mentor at LEK that I was very, very close to. And I, I stayed at LEK. He very sadly passed away. And once he passed away, I, I was, I felt that I could move on to a new place. But the journey to Bain has been for me, an, an amazing journey, both at a professional but also on a personal level. I've learned tremendously. I, I think I've, I've evolved as a individual tremendously. But I came in effectively to uh, initially I was offered a position in Singapore. I was I'd been living in Bangkok for many years. Kids in school. My parents had retired to Thailand, and I was told I had to move to Singapore. And I said, guys, that's that's sort of going to be a deal breaker for me. Anyway, they came back 24 hours later and said, you can continue to live in Thailand, but you got to fly to Singapore every week and drink the Bain Kool-Aid and learn how to be a Baini. And I agreed to that and did that for the first six months until the office head out here in this part of the world said, OK, we've, you're, you're like a Baini. You don't, you've drunk enough Kool-Aid. We, we think of you that way. But what I've loved about Bain and the journey being here is that I've had a series of roles. And this is we sort of talk in Bain about making your own Bain. And I, I would say that for me, this has just been part of the fascination. When I was originally brought in, Bain did not have a global oil and gas practice. And I was part of a team 
that was brought in to help build that practice. We now have a very robust and vibrant oil and gas practice. But my initial role was what they called quarterbacking the oil and gas practice in Asia. I did that for probably three or four years and helped hire a number of other people that helped build up that practice. And I knew a lot about oil and gas, and I'd spent a lot of time working in the industry, including a year living at Unical's operating HQ in Balikpapan, which is uh, in Borneo. I was not as deep as some of the people that I ended up hiring. And after a while, I handed that role off and I moved over and I led our industrial goods and services practice for Southeast Asia. I really enjoyed that, helped build that up in Southeast Asia. After that, I moved into a role in healthcare and led our Southeast Asia healthcare practice for a number of years. And I, I did that mostly out of the fact that I had done healthcare very early in my career at LEK. That's one of LEK's uh, strong points is biotech and healthcare. And what had happened was we knew healthcare was a big white space in Asia. And there were a lot of principals and, and associate partners, managers that wanted to play in healthcare, but there was no partner to give them a seat at the table. So I agreed to take that role to sort of give them a seat at the table. And then subsequently, a couple of them got promoted and I was able to hand off that role to one of them. And then today I'm currently leading our strategy practice for Southeast Asia. So that's my new role. And I would say along the way, I've been the office head in Bangkok and then working with you, Keith, in, in a role as head of uh, APAC recruiting. So variety of different roles. And this is all layered on top of what is the core role of a Bain partner, which is to work with clients to deliver outstanding results and make them happy. This sort of dual track that we all do at Bain & Company. It is interesting because earlier in the conversation, you mentioned when you first started LEK, joining the team and trying to find ways to make yourself useful. Here you are at Bain, building your own Bain and working in multiple different practice areas and taking on different leadership roles. In addition to the client work and the missions that you've taken on that side, talk a little bit about what it was like being an office head and beginning to end part of the business, because you've also stood up offices here. One of the first trips I made when I joined the recruiting team was to Bangkok for a regional recruiting meeting way back in the day and visited the office there. And I, I think it was a relatively young office in 2013. What was it like building that up and getting that growing to scale, having just watched one of their summer meeting videos over the weekend? I would say it's tremendously fun. And I guess I would say that what I, I've been very lucky in my career in the sense that I'd opened a couple of offices with LEK. And so in many ways, the Bangkok office for me was a do-over. All the mistakes I'd made opening the first office at LEK, I was able to correct. And it's not many times in your professional career where you sort of get a complete do-over. Like literally I opened LEK's office and then I, as I sat down and sort of thought about it, I, I could sort of reflect on that experience. But it, it's just a lot of fun. And I guess not to brag, but the Bangkok office has consistently been rated and every year we're in the top five in terms of internal NPS. It's got a tremendous culture. And I get a lot of questions about how do you create that really powerful culture? And there's a couple of things there. And, and I'm going to start with by calling out, we call them EAs at Bain, but basically the secretaries and support staff. And I know it seems odd. You sort of say, what is it about them? And they are just the most friendly, nicest, can-do attitude people in the world. It's almost become self-selecting that that staff is the backbone of the office and their attitude in terms of let's do whatever it takes to make this office successful then just ends up permeating the whole culture. So I think that's one. Two, when I first opened the Bangkok office, Bain did not recruit any of our local schools here in Thailand. I pointed out that I thought this was a error. There is tremendous talent locally. And we then started recruiting at two of the local schools here, Thomasad and, and Chula Longkorn. And they've been a huge source of talent for us in the region and, and continue to be. It doesn't mean we're not recruiting in the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia, but we were able to supplement that with some local talent. And for a lot of that local talent, 
a career at Bain is truly a, a life changer. In other words, a lot of these people come out of very humble backgrounds. They may, in many cases, we have a, we have a manager in our office right now. She's the very first person in her family to have gone to college. She came to Bain as an AC. We subsequently sponsored her to Columbia Business School, and she's now a member of the um, partner manager team, and I hope, and she's well on track to hopefully someday be a partner at Bain. And this is a life-changing thing for her to be able to sort of be on this journey and have this career at Bain. And so that's just helped create a tremendously positive atmosphere. It's very family-oriented. We're about 70 people now. I know that the Bain office is now bigger than the office I joined in Singapore 15 years ago when I was partner six in Southeast Asia. We've now got 45 partners in the region or something. So just tremendous growth over those 15 years. But it's been just a lot of fun opening the office and literally when that the very first office down to picking the furniture. I don't right, do that right. anymore. There's now other people who come in and Maine has a different policy about these things and, and we're much stricter. But in those days, it was sort of, I remember we had a crazy idea of making our boardroom table out of bamboo. There was a company here in Thailand and the table was a disaster. It never quite worked, but it had sort of meant to have pop-up things for you to plug in your computer and everything else. But it was all little bamboo pieces put together. It was, and the one in the shop looked beautiful. The one in our boardroom didn't quite work because they actually had to construct it in the boardroom. It was so big they couldn't bring it up in the elevator. But mistakes are made and you learn and you just make do. And, but it's been tremendously fun. And standing up in office and really getting that injection of the culture, it's less about all the fun things that we do and more about how we treat each other, how we interact with each other, which I guess is probably part of the reason they wanted you to spend those couple of months in Singapore when you started and just really learn the value system of the firm. That's where, when I talk about the personal journey I've been on as well as the professional, there's a bunch of values that that Bain has about True North, about having the tough conversation and ways that we talk and teach our people to engage with clients that ultimately creep into your real life. And so I have two boys, 17 and, and 21, and we talk, you know, I sort of say, guys, we're going to have a True North conversation here. Let's talk about something that none of us really want to talk about, but we need to address. And, you know, these things end up working their way into how you engage with both your family, your friends, not just work. And I think they're tremendously powerful values they end up having an impact on work. And, and this reminds me of a sort of a story. I remember early on, one of the clients here in Thailand, that before I joined, Bain had been trying to get into for many, many years. We'd been relatively, they'd been unsuccessful. They'd never managed to get in. And then, you know, I joined and they put out an, a sort of an RFP to the usual suspects of the, of the big three. Basically, it was to help them evaluate. They wanted to move into an adjacency growth area. So they spoke to all three of us. But basically, in the press was that they were looking to acquire Business X, as we sort of did the analysis and looked at it, our team came to the conclusion that acquiring Business X was the wrong thing. There were a whole bunch of issues around Business X, and we didn't think acquiring them was the right thing. And so we went in and gave our pitch and said, we know in the press it says you're going to acquire Business X, and it looks like you're, you're well down the path on that deal, but we think that's the wrong thing to do. Let us tell you why. And we sort of laid out our, our, our rationale in the pitch. So you know, we went away, and I got a call the next day from the head of strategy, and he called me up and he said, hey, we'd like to work with Bain can you come in and, and see me? And so, of course, I went in to see him. We talked about the start date and everything else. And at the end of the conversation, I said, tell me, why why did you select us as we always do? And yeah. he said, the other two firms came in and told us how brilliant we were to be selecting Business X, <laughs> how it was the right move and how it was going to make us this really strong player. Our own internal team had reached the same conclusion that you did, that Business X may not be the right acquisition. We're already looking at Business Y. But you were the only guys who came in and told us what you were really thinking. And we decided that we'd like to work with a company that isn't afraid to say what they really think. And so 
And we had this conversation. I remember the senior partner at the time, I was a junior partner saying, guys, if we think this is the right answer, we owe it to the client to go and tell them this answer. It stood us well. We've now been working with that client off and on for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. We are their preferred premium client, all on the basis that we were not afraid to say what we really felt. And the irony is if you had told them what they wanted to hear and were somehow randomly chosen from the three that said the same thing, it probably would have happened. They probably would have flopped. And by now you would have been long gone from there as the firm who gave them the bad advice. I would have liked to think we would have worked with them and come to some real insight and said, hey, this is the wrong move. But anyway, you're, you're probably right. <laughs> the insight there and the, the cultural value there, I think, is very legitimate. And I've seen that time and time again, where not even on the diligence side, but I've seen it in corporate clients where we say, look, if you want us to do a strategy project, we really think that divesting the business or making this other change could be where the outcome is. And if that's not on the table, we may not be the firm for you because the right answer has to be in scope. Otherwise, what are we doing? That's right. We're just rubber stamping something you already want, right? And therefore the value we bring is, is pretty limited. Yeah, you do a couple months and ultimately for our teams, it's, it's a terrible experience because everybody's looking and it's saying A, 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 and for some reason we're doing B and nobody's motivated, nobody's excited. I've been on proposals where clients want us to do that and we just say, we're not the firm to work with, which is really interesting to see. Great. And Sherrod, I want to leave with one question. If I tie together your experiences, definitely lots of different leadership roles on the practice side, on the office side, on the recruiting side, but then also playing lead roles in industry areas, working in multiple industries and multiple countries around the region. A lot of people talk about becoming an expert versus staying sort of as a general manager, jack of all trades. In some ways, you've walked through all of the people roles at Bain, and you've also walked through a lot of the different industry practice areas. And I wonder, is your expertise a particular industry or practice area, or would you say that it's Bangkok or Southeast Asia or even all of Asia is the expertise where you're actually almost like a geographic expert or a regional expert? Because some students and people that are out there listening to this and considering a career in consulting might wonder what expertise they bring, but they might have a passion for a particular part of the world. Is that part of the equation? And how should they be thinking about that? It is part of the, the equation. I, I like your phrase there. I, I would call myself more of a geography expert. And increasingly, I would say it's a Thailand expert. I mean, I've been here long enough. While I may not know every single sort of CEO that is working at a business that could engage Bain, I certainly know somebody who knows that person and therefore can leverage my way in. And so I've been in Thailand more than 25 plus years. So as you'd expect, there is a role if you want to come in and be geographically centered. I do think consulting, though, is moving much more into specialization. When you and I started, it used to be you could sort of show up and say, I've got really smart guys. We've got a bunch of frameworks. We're going to do some analysis. Yes, we may not know a whole lot about your business, but that's okay. We'll figure it out. And that was 25 years ago. I think today, to even get a seat at the table, you have to show up with expertise. However, that expertise doesn't have to be me. I've got a chemical right. client right now, a global chemical client who's headquartered here in Thailand. They know I know very little about chemicals. Have I done some chemical cases in my career? Yes, I have. Yeah, what they so expect I. is that I am the conduit from which they come through Bain to then get some very, very deep chemical expertise. And in this particular client, they've got assets around the world. They've got assets here in Asia, but also a lot in North America and a lot in Europe. And so my job is to bring those expert partners in those geographies make that introduction, help structure the work, help structure the commercial terms around that work, help report back to the CEO and the executive team. In fact, I've got, they call it the IMC, which is the very top team. They're basically management team report today. And so you don't necessarily have to be the deep expert. You can be 
the guy in the geography that has a bunch of relationships as well. So I think there is an opportunity. I do think, though, people are increasingly going to have to have something. And I would say in my career, that's been sort of energy. You know, I helped start the oil and gas practice. And if I had to pick a deep practice area, it would be energy. I've done a lot of work there. So you do need that to rely on, but certainly you can play a geographic role. Right. And you can build that expertise over the first several years of your career, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think for many people, they fall into it. What happens is they come and they're just working on a series of cases and they look up when they become a manager and lo and behold, they've done three cases or four cases in industry X, right? And then as they think about specializing, as I tell people, as you think about what you want to specialize in, you want to, you want to be passionate about the industry, but you also want to make sure, you, is it a group of partners that you want to work with? Are you somebody who wants to mostly stay home or you, do you enjoy getting on airplanes? So there's a variety of factors that go into selecting that. And then people seem to naturally gravitate or wake up and realize, okay, I'm, I'm an expert in X. And I didn't even realize that I've, I've just done six cases in financial services. And within financial services, it's really on consumer banking. And lo and behold, I could go and have a conversation with any executive on consumer banking. I didn't even realize it. I know exactly what you're talking about. The other thing I, I just want to point out as we wrap here is you talked a little bit about bringing in the best of Bain and the partner experts from around the system. I think a lot of people think about the team dynamic and the team culture as the manager, the ACs, the consultants on a team, and they sort of forget the global nature of the partnership and the partner teaming. In one case, I remember I had a client who wanted a proposal meeting out on the West Coast of the United States, and a partner from Europe flew in for that two-hour proposal meeting because he was an expert and he wanted to make sure that we had our best foot forward. And I didn't even have to really ask. I mentioned the meeting and sort of dismissed it. And he was like, I'll be there. Send the invite. There's lots of those examples. A couple that jump out for me was we had a partner fly from Mexico to Manila for a, a big pitch with the management team there. And he literally like landed, showered, went to the pitch. It was like two hours, went straight from the pitch back to the airport and flew back to Mexico City. Those are the legendary stories pre-COVID. My guess is we will learn that Zoom might be an effective substitute. But to me, it's less about being the tough guy and, and the one who can just grin and bear it and get on a plane and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And when I've done it myself, it's always coming from a place of if being in person gives us the best chance and sets you up for success the best way possible, I will be there in person. My hope is, like I said, now I think we're learning that you can be there in Zoom and probably be okay. It's nice to know that your partner team has your back and that sort of partnership and teaming mindset it's hard to explain to people how much that means. It's meant a lot to me to have partners go through extraordinary steps to support the work that I was doing. And in turn, you want to do the same for them. Yeah. And I think you're touching on, which is there is a real camaraderie among the partnership. It really means something to be a partner at Bain & Company. And I think, I mean, I obviously don't know. I think there's 800 partners around the world. I don't know them all. But when I get that random email from somebody that, and I know that I have some capability or insight or knowledge that can help them. I instantly reply. I, I try to make myself available. And that's just part of the camaraderie that comes with being a, a Bain & Company partner. And I think it's partly the sauce that helps fuel the firm to continued success. Awesome. Well, Sherrod, thanks for your time today. I know it's first thing in the morning out there. It's, it's getting into the evening here in Chicago. But I do want to thank you for the conversation today. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast. And uh, look forward to continuing working with you in recruiting. It's been fun so far, and we need to keep it going. Likewise, Keith. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes, and thanks for listening.